My wife uh, put this stool up here because I'm not feeling well at all today. So if I fall down, uh, let me sleep it off. Just leave me right there on the floor. Don't bother me. Huh? Check my pulse. We got nurses in the room. We're safe. Obviously, I just missed a couple of jokes at my expense. So what was that? Joe Barra, what was that? Um, okay, just to be clear, I never bring my wallet into the pulpit because of exactly that. <laughs> oh, you people. <laughs> Ross, Ross Perot, right? You people? Anyway, somebody over here said something too, but I'm not going to... We're going to leave it alone. So today, uh, maybe we're talking to the choir because you're here. <laughs> You're the choir. Um, we're, uh, we're trying to, I, I said last time I preached, I know I've been away a few times, once not intentionally, two times were intentionally vacation slots, now I'm in the slave market straight through till November, I think. So, oh, putting up with me? Thank you so much, Christine. You know who your friends are. Okay. So this morning, for those of you who are visiting, I'm just going to remind us that we have been reading together, some of us on schedule, others of us not so much, the Daily Bible, right? So if I can put my first screen up, that's a picture of the Daily Bible. That's not it. Um, there it is. And uh, if you would like to get one, we'd love to have you read along. You don't feel like you have to catch up to where, the, uh, the, uh, where we're supposed to be. Let me just put it that way. And because uh, some of us are actually ahead, I heard, and uh, and that's a good thing. We're in the daily Bible because, well, because we need to know what God has said to His people. It's as simple as that. And often, people who profess faith in Christ really don't know what's in the book that God has given us, and so that's why we're reading through it again uh, together. And for some of us, maybe the first time. And if that's true, way to go! I'm so glad you're doing it. Stick with it. Even if you fall behind, just keep plowing. Keep plowing. We're, we're spreading a whole year into two years. That's the way I went through college. I spread one year into two. It took me five years to get my degree. So, daily Bible, that's what we're talking about. Today's message is because of two weeks ago, I said, anybody remember my screen door illustration? I think a few of you do. Okay, that went over real well. So, you know what? What's that? the screen door manager at McDonald's and, you know, yeah, and I said, it, I'm tired of the screen door banging. When one of the th screen doors that needs to be fixed is how we minister to our kids from childhood through high school. And so we're trying to revamp uh, children's ministry. We've got a volunteer to oversee. Uh, we're not going to twist anybody's arm, right? But... There's something at stake here, and that's kind of what I want to speak about today. And so my title this morning is, A Little Child Shall Lead Them. And, um, you know, when you hear that expression, it reminds you of a passage of Scripture, probably if you've been in the Bible a while. It's a description of the Messianic kingdom. 
For those of you who may be visiting and may be leaning in and wondering what's this whole Christianity thing about, sometimes you can visit churches and never get a clue about what Jesus really means, right? Might miss it completely. I wouldn't want that to be your portion today. I'd want to at least give you an idea that Jesus came into the world, as we sang about this morning, to rescue the souls of men and women. He came to rescue us. And in this broken world, he not only gives us hope for eternity, but he starts to change our life. In fact, here's the problem. Sin entered the world and fractured everything. We respond to our sin nature, our inclination, which is not always healthy. And last time I tried to explain what carnality was about. Anybody remember that? Okay, all five of you, I got it. And uh, my point being... God comes into our life to not only give us eternal hope, but abundant life now, which means victory over our carnal inclinations. If you're a curmudgeon, you can actually stop being one. (gasps) Did you hear the gasp in the room? If you're a mean girl, you can actually stop being a mean girl. Be a nice, kind girl, not a phony. It can come from the inner man or inner woman. So transformation is a real thing. And here's the deal. God has intended from the moment man fell in Eden to restore what was lost. I'm sorry if your life hasn't worked out well for you. Some of us had had a hard time too, myself included. I didn't ask to be born into a home where I would watch my mother's head bashed on the floor by a violent, insane father. But God has rescued me from that and given me the victorious side and utilized me to help others who have been in pain. There's a reason. God is restoring what was lost. Does that make sense? And one day he's going to restore all that is broken. That's, that description, a little child shall lead them, is the verse in Isaiah about the lion shall lie down with the lamb. Anybody recognize that kind of language? We even use that. Even, even public people who don't understand the Bible at all quote that kind of stuff. The wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the kid. And, and that's not a boy or girl kid. That's a, a goat. Uh, thank you very much. This is... You out. Anyway. <laughs> and the calf and the young lion and fatling together. And this is the picture that we get of it. This is a more modern version. Some of them are old. This, this guy, named uh, an artist named James Johnson, I believe, he got it right because the word used for a little child is a little boy lad shall lead them. In other words, they shall do no harm on my holy mountain. The, the environment, the world, this beautiful place, this universe that God created, he's going to set it back in place the way it was supposed to be before we humans messed it up and are still messing it up, by the way. So that's what that verse brings to mind. A little lad will lead them. But that's not what I'm talking about today. Well, I mean, I am every Sunday And if you haven't come to know this person who wants to restore your life, there's no reason for you to leave today without knowing him. He invites you into life with him if you'll receive him as Savior and Lord. It's a gift that he wants to give you. And it changes us. 
But today what I want to do is park in the book of 1 Samuel, the third chapter, because it's one of my fave-rave stories in the Bible. It's the story of Shamuel, Samuel. Shamuel, the Lord hears. El, God, Shamu, that's not an orca whale. That's Hebrew. That's Hebrew for hears. The Lord hears. And why he received that name, some of you may know the story. And I've got note paper for those of you who like to take notes in the bulletin. The first point I want to make is he came from some very solid roots. So allow me to tell that story a little bit. And as we go through the story, to extract some truth that will benefit us, I hope. So Hannah, the wife of Elkanah, is childless. We know that story. Very painful situation for many women. She seeks God intensely in prayer. Eli is the high priest at Shiloh. That's where the tabernacle is set up because David hasn't come on the scene and set up the Temple Mount yet in Jerusalem. And he sees Hannah so intensely praying. This is an awesome picture, isn't it? She's praying and her lips are moving and he thinks she's been... He walks up and he notices her at the tabernacle praying to the Lord and thinks that, hey, woman, stop drinking, go away. If you're going to drink, drink at home, you know. And she says, oh, no, my Lord, that's not what's going on. I am pouring out the grief, the burden of my soul. I'm asking for something. And God, of course, hears and he even responds to her. So, well, may the Lord bless you and give you what you're asking for. And he did. So a few years later, she has Samuel. It's miraculous, really. And uh, Samuel, this little tot, by the way, was uh, raised at home for a season The weaning time for Hebrews often could be three to five years, so maybe four years old. He's a little toddler. Hannah keeps her promise. She was a serious... By the way, let me just throw this out there. Elkanah and Hannah and the rest of the family were serious worshipers. They came to worship, and it was in that context that this whole thing occurred. And then they come back... And Hannah has made a vow, if you give me this child, I will dedicate him to the Lord's work for his entire life. A razor will never come on his head, which is a reference in the Old Testament to a Nazarite vow, which meant the person was dedicated to God. One of the marks that he was dedicated to God, kind of like the reverse in priesthood. You know, they shave heads sometimes in like Buddhism. It's the opposite in the Hebrew culture. It's no cutting the hair. Anybody remember a famous hero in the book of Judges who was supposed to be like that? (laughs) Not your best role model, by the way. (laughs) But Samuel does become that. But here's what happens. She brings the child to the temple, uh, the the, uh, tabernacle, four years later maybe, this little toddler. And she tells Eli, this is what I'm doing. And here's the passage of scripture that describes her commitment. I have also dedicated him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is dedicated to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. This is on your your black Bibles in the chairs. If you want to follow along, this whole story is on page 284 to 285. And that way you can check and make sure I'm not making anything up. I always say that. Nobody ever says anything. It's like, we know you don't make anything up, Pastor John. Okay. (laughs) You're not convinced. Okay. 
So here he is, a little boy. His family knew the Lord. They were true worshipers, real followers, if you will. I'm going to slip into a little borderline heresy. I'm going to say they're followers of Jesus. Is that okay? They didn't know they were followers of Jesus back then, but that's who they are. They're real believers, right? They believe in Yahweh. So I've fulfilled my promise. I've dedicated him to the Lord as long as he lives. He's dedicated to the Lord. And notice what it says there. So now this little toddler is doing what? He's worshiping the Lord there. Want to know a little secret? He doesn't know the Lord yet. When you're raising your children... I don't know when they come. I don't know at what point. Now, sometimes we do. Sometimes we see it. Bam! They they make the decision. They're seven years old, and you see the light come on, right? But I don't know that. But I trained my children. I told you a few months back about our little Stephen when he was just a tyke sitting on our laps. We were in a church where everyone raised their hands for worship. And he'd be there with his blanket, you know, sucking his thumb. And he'd look around, and the next thing you know, he'd be... That's a toddler worshiping the Lord. You follow what I'm saying? In fact, the word to worship the Lord is the word to bow down. So it's saying that he's doing the outer actions of worship. Are you following? He's being trained in something that is going to become a real issue in his life in the future. He's being trained. His family trained him. And then he worships before the Lord with Eli. He starts to get trained. We're going to talk today about uh, what, by the way, where'd our video go? I got up and started too soon, right? We'll play it at the end. Okay, we have a nice little video. It's a, it's, you, oh my goodness, well, we're moving on. Okay, we're going to show this uh, little video a little bit later. So here's what I wanted to share, is that one, when it comes to ministry to children, parents come first. Isn't that profound? All right. We were working on our team to uh, put together children's ministry at Harmony, or upgrade, do it well. And uh, what we believe about children's ministry, uh, somebody wrote down for me, won't mention any names, Terry, but uh, parents are children's primary Christian instructors. As a church, our role is to work with parents to bring up their children in the Lord. I mean, obviously. So what we're saying is our job is to support the family in their responsibility for the spiritual nurture and growth of their children. It kind of cracks me up sometimes when I find people, they want to put their kids in Sunday school, or let me just be real blunt, in our Christian school, because they'll learn Christian values there, and they'll learn to live a Christian life, and the parents behave horribly to teachers or administrators or other people, and they wonder why it doesn't work. Huh. Thank you for that. Kind of cracks me up. No, the intention is when you see the, the, the fruit bearing in 
a Rachel or an Alyssa or someone like that. There's support at home. In other words, the first and foremost step of evangelism in your child's life is you living the Christian life. Hello? That's the first thing. And I know sometimes we've gotten things wrong. And I want to say, thank God for grace. You know how you get grace? First, you've got to get it to give it. You can't give away what you ain't got. How do you get grace? If I'm in trouble, how did, how did David get grace when he blew it? I saw a few, I heard a few of them out there. He radically repented. Remember? Psalm 51, against you, you only I have sinned. Boy, it sure seems like he sinned against Uriah. He was dead. Bathsheba, he committed adultery with her. No, it's true. He did sin against those people, but how did he take it? Why did he have a heart after God? Because he said, you're the primary reality here, not those people. I have sinned against you. Shame, shame, shame on me. That's how he got grace. If you'll give me forgiveness, then I will again, even though I don't have any business right now, I will again teach transgressors your ways. That's where it has to begin. Solid roots. Um, Samuel comes from a family who obviously believed. He worships, he bowed down, he starts to learn the duties of worship under Eli. And then the scripture tells us that Eli begins to train him. And so we have this. Now, the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord before Eli. Now, this is where the church comes in. So this is the second half. Let me rewind the tape for a second. Can I rewind? You know, I'm glad I'm functional. So go, come you know, work with me here, okay, people? Uh, I'm having trouble just like, am I going to stay standing up? Can I just say there are times only one parent is a believer. I'm going to just be blunt. That's hard. It's just hard. Thank God for you that you keep holding fast to the Lord Jesus and telling the truth. Just do it. Okay? Because we need grace. We need grace, a lot of grace, to get through. Right? But somebody has to be taking that role. And sometimes we have no power over that. Right? The ideal is that both of us, if... Uh, if you're in that situation today, you can solve it by making a decision. I want to be one of those who feeds the truth into my child. Even if I've never professed faith in Christ, I can make that choice. You don't have to put it off. So, and is there a place for evangelism of children where parents are not even believers? Of course there is. Otherwise, you wouldn't have organizations like Child Evangelism Fellowship and go through all of those ministries. My wife and I met at, at a camp like that. But let's face it, in the assembly of believers, you've got to have that reinforcement at home. And then what the church offers can take that child way beyond where they are. And that's what happens here. The boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord before Eli. He's doing duties that Eli is coaching him with. He's training him in theology. Samuel is learning theology. He's learning who Yahweh is. He's learning how to 
be an intercessor between the people in their brokenness and the God of Israel who wants to rescue and heal them. And Eli has that role. Eli's a little bit uh, rough around the edges, shall we say. And uh, God is going to actually raise up Samuel to supersede Eli. So don't, don't throw Eli out in the trash can because Samuel learned an awful lot from Eli. In fact, if you read toward the end of the story, you find he even picked up some of Eli's bad habits. Anybody know what I mean? Okay, so here's the story. I mean, you're all, right? You've read this. You already passed this if you've been in the Daily Bible. You're past this section. The story goes like this. Eli is the priest, the high priest, serving the people of God and, and Yahweh, making intercession for them, offering their sacrifices, instructing where appropriate, which that was part of the job of the priests and the Levites, was to instruct the people as to what was right and wrong. He had two sons who were destined. One of them was destined to become high priest after him. These two sons were really shaky characters, not unlike some of the great scandalous church stories we've heard in magazines over the years, you know, certain big high-profile people uh, getting involved in sexual scandal or financial embezzlement or whatever. That's exactly what Eli's sons were like. And so there was very vile corruption going on right in God's house, in his business, if you will. One of the things that particularly provoked the Lord was then when sacrifices were given to God, they would go in and help themselves to the portion that belonged to God. And God, like, has an opinion about some of that stuff. And it wasn't very positive. So he told Eli, if you're going to honor your sons above me, I'm going to end your house. I'm just going to bring it to an end. This is the sight of God that... Uh, it's just not politically correct today. The problem is it's just the truth. It's who God is. He's a holy God, and he doesn't tolerate sin. The only reason we're tolerated is because the blood of Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice that makes a way for us to be accepted with him. So as the story goes, uh, God promises Eli he's going to bring this to pass. And here's the language that God mentions. You honor your sons above me. There's one account that we have in the scripture where he pulls his sons aside and he goes, guys, what are you doing? You know, I hear these stories. It's really bad. And he doesn't do anything. He barely rebukes them, barely says what you're doing is no good. The reports I hear about you are not good. You know, you're messing with... Have you thought about the fact that maybe you're messing with God, but he didn't bring it to an end, so... God decided to bring it to an end for himself. And that's what happened. The sad part is, Samuel became one of the greatest prophets Israel ever saw, but his children did not follow his ways just like Eli. He probably learned fathering from Eli a little bit. That was probably a weakness. You know what I love about the Bible? Here I go again. Who would write this stuff if it wasn't true and try to get people to follow it? He shows us in our weakness, right? He shows humans in their brokenness, including Samuel, one of the greatest and strongest prophets that came on the scene. So, parents were first. Eli, the church, was second, if I can 
be that uh, free with that instruction. And here, we're dealing with a young lad, a toddler to maybe 8, 10, 12 years old maybe at this point. We don't know exactly, but it's a word used for a younger child. Okay, It's not a young man yet. He's a younger child. First thing is, he has solid roots, both in training in the church and in his home. The second thing is, he has a personal encounter. I love the story. I I absolutely love this. I'm going to tell you why in just a minute, why it's one of my favorites. Here's what the scripture says. Now Samuel, here it is, did not yet know who. He didn't. There wasn't a personal knowledge yet of God. Nor had the word of the Lord been revealed to him. By the way, the word knowing, if you study, if you do a word study on the word know, from Old Testament and New Testament, it has to do with intimate knowledge. That's why the word know is used for the joining of a husband and a wife. It's an intimate knowledge. So knowing the Lord is, you know, I know Donald Trump. Right, you all know Donald Trump? Some of you are going, I don't want to. Some of you say, whatever. I know. I don't really know him, right? I don't really know him. I know of him. There's a difference between knowing of him and knowing him. Now, this guy, I know. All right? So there are names I could throw out and say, I actually know that guy personally. So that's the same thing with this. At this point, Samuel is serving the Lord with service in the temple. He's doing everything Eli is training him to do. He has not had a personal encounter with Jesus yet. But that's about to change. Nor had the word of the Lord yet been revealed to him. And now the drama gets kind of creepy. Yes, sir. No. No, because they may not have been actually reading that much. Lucky if you have a few copies of the Torah at all, but revealed as in a prophet getting the word of the Lord. Great question. So now it gets creepy, right? Samuel's sleeping. He's sleeping in quarters in the tent of meeting, the, uh, the, the, the uh, meeting place for the Lord. And in the middle of the night, he gets up because he hears, he thinks, Eli calling him. And he goes and says, uh, what do you want? You called me. Uh, you know, is there something I need to do? You need a sandwich? You know, what is it? Because that's the way they used to disciple, right? Disciples, uh, they would follow their master around, Elisha with Elijah, whatever. They would serve him. They would be a servant to the, the leader. And that's how they learned. They would learn and they would serve. And so what can I do, Eli? What do you need? I didn't call you. You know, you, you had a dream. Go back to bed. And so Samuel goes back to bed. A few minutes later... Samuel, this guy, he gets up. Come on, Eli, what do you want? Tell me you're hungry, right? It's the middle of the night. You read the story, you know he liked to eat, right? So, he did. You want, you, want, you want to say, I didn't call you, go back to bed. So he goes back to bed. Samuel. Okay, Eli, what do you want? That's the third time you've called me, and Eli finally snaps out of his slumber and says oops okay Samuel um, go back and lay down and when you hear that voice again you say speak Lord for your servant is listening 
so that's what it says. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay in his place. And this time, the Lord comes and says, I'm about to do something that when everybody in Israel hears about it, they're going to have their mouth hanging open. It actually says their ears were tingle, but that's what it means. They're going to be, what? Because I'm going to take care of this sin problem with Eli and his sons, and I'm going to raise you up as a prophet of God among my people. Now, let me just be clear about this. Most of us are not going to hear a voice like that, okay? Because some of you are sitting here right now going, am I abnormal because I haven't heard a voice wake me up? Can I tell you why this is one of my favorite stories, though? Because the man who mentored me ordained it to the ministry at 72 years of age literally had this happen to him. Literally. Sleeping one night next to his wife, heard his name called, turned to his wife, woke her up, said, what do you want? And she said, I didn't call you. <laughs> Go back. She may have said some other things. I don't know. But... Happened again. Same thing. And finally, the third time, Frank, he said, oh, Lord. And he got up and sought God's face, and God commissioned him to preach somewhere. I sat under his tutelage like Samuel sat under Eli's tutelage. Week after week, I would invite myself for lunch. I was a rude little jerk. And just beg him to tell me the stories that he had of how God had worked in his life. So don't ever discount that God can do whatever he wants. However, most of us are going to hear the voice of God in, as that still, small voice. And the scripture tells us, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons and daughters of God. Every one of us in this room if you come to Christ, have heard the call, I hope you've heard the call of Christ, to salvation. When that Holy Spirit encounter occurs, you go, I'm in trouble. I need a Savior. When that happens, you need to respond to that call. Then if you've become a child of God, you get a call to serve. That's why he's given you a gift. There's some place you're supposed to have your hand to the kingdom work. We've got it so messed up. I'm just telling you, now I'm preaching, okay? Everything up till now has been boring teaching. Now I'm preaching. What I see is God has given us the gift of salvation so that we can live our life and do whatever we want. Oh, and by the way, once in a while I'll think about him. That's what I see. That's what I see. I know that's not very complimentary, but that's what I see. No. Every one of us who's born from above, he's given a gift. He didn't put it in us to throw it away. He put it in us to utilize for something to do with moving his kingdom forward. Maybe your problem is you don't see the church as a manifestation of the kingdom. But that's what God is building, his kingdom. His kingdom is in people. The kingdom of God is where? Within you, the scripture says. And so that's where he's trying to build his kingdom work. Okay? So, where am I? Samuel went and lay down. So a personal encounter transforms this young man. The last thing that he might call us with, you might hear an inner voice, is when he calls you to full-time ministry of some sort. He does that. 
We don't have many expectations. In fact, I think about that. When we dedicate our children, here I go, I'm preaching again. When we dedicate our children, I dedicated five children to the Lord, okay? If he puts his hand on any one of them and says, I'm taking them on this race around the world for nine months, so be it, thank you, Jesus. But they may die. Yes, so may I. I could get hit by a car, especially living down here. I could get hit by a car. Try to cross to 11 sometime, you know what I mean. When they fix the, the thing, anyway, you get what I'm saying. There must be an immediate interaction between your child and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's my statement. It's at the bottom of your page. God has no grandchildren. You have grandchildren, but God does not have grandchildren. He either has children or lost people, one or the other. You're either in or not. That God has no grandchildren. We can have spiritual grandchildren. I'll talk about that in a minute. But God doesn't have grandchildren. Stop trusting in a false gospel. Stop trusting in some... I know I, know I agitate people when I talk about this, but I'm agitated. We're trusting in the wrong things. A personal encounter has to have an effect. It doesn't have to be huge. You don't have to be crazy like Hawko. But there ought to be something going on. I have five kids. They all profess faith. Not all of them are born again yet. Did you hear me? I'm not going to believe in nonsense. Stop living for yourself, expecting God to bless, to bless my family when I'm ignoring my responsibilities. We're called to minister, to do something. Let me, let me just share something. I, this was kind of a fun surprise for me. Um, months back, um, this, was, this was, no, this is not months back. This is two years ago, Terry. After they started Awana, our Awana missionary stopped by and gave me some propaganda. Actually, this is kind of a cool little book. Dr. Rob Rhinow must be one of their leaders. And um, this book says, God's Grand Vision for the Home. I just, let me just mess with you a little bit, can I? I mean, I never mess with you, so let, let me mess with you now. Introduction. Let's begin with a question. When your son or daughter leaves your home someday, which of the following would you want most for them? A, to be successful academically. B, to be successful athletically. C, to be successful socially. D, to be the person of faith and character. They didn't give an E. He said, I wish there was an E. All of the above. <laughs> now, most like you said, oh, faith and character are most important. At least it seems like the right answer, right? What I would call the Sunday school answer. Let me change the question a bit. Which of the following parenting issues gets the best of your time, effort, money, anxiety, and planning? Time, effort, money, anxiety, planning. Academics, athletics, social life, faith and character development. Ooh, don't you hate people like this? You get what I'm saying. Family worship in the early church. In fact, for the first decades of the early church, there were no Christian church buildings at all. 
You didn't bring them to church to be trained. You did it. A person felt called to be a pastor in a church, he had to demonstrate that he was actively leading and teaching his children to love the Lord. It was a resume essential. Family worship in colonial times. I, I'm really messing, huh? Family worship. Oh, and the last thing you need is some stodgy, now we're going to love the Lord right now. You know, that's not what it is. You know what the Bible said? When you rise up, when you sit down, when you're walking in the way, all of that language. Remember that? Anybody remember that? It's in the Old Testament promise. Okay. And that's what we did. They'd get off the school bus and I'd find out some kid was a bully or he was using filthy words and was like, okay, it's Bible time. Now, I didn't have to take the Bible out. We would just say, let's talk about that family. What do you think's broken in that home? What do you think their parents are like? How come that kid is so unhappy? Got any ideas? I'd let the kids... Now, here's where Jesus is the answer for us. The Puritans, who were the spiritual founders of America, were totally committed to the practice of family worship. One of the primary responsibilities of church leaders in the 1600s... Boy, am I glad I live today was to visit each family in the community and assess whether or not the parents were spiritually training their children through the regular practice of family worship. If they found that a family was not doing this, they would encourage the head of the household to begin. If after that encouragement the family still did not have family worship together, the parents of that household were not permitted to take communion. Starting next month, we're going to... No. That... <laughs> That was the consequence. It was to remain in effect till the parents demonstrated they would take seriously the spiritual training of their children. Family worship is the foundation for worship in the church. If children don't regularly experience worship in the home, how can we expect them to feel comfortable in church on Sunday mornings without family worship? That hour on Sundays is the most bizarre hour of the week. <laughs> Boy, is it ever sometimes, huh? <laughs> The most bizarre hour of the week. All of a sudden, they're expected to sit, listen, sing, follow along in their Bibles, and turn the attention of their hearts to spiritual things. Okay, enough of that. No questions allowed. No, I'm kidding. It doesn't mean just formally. Yeah. Yeah, what I was saying about they get off the school bus and we just have a conversation, that was family worship. And, and some people are like, oh, it's got to be every day, and you set the bar so high, you're going to kill yourself. I was in ministry. I had five children. We had five children. We had a huge church. I was a little busy. I committed to Monday nights. I was lucky and happy that at least one day a week in the evening, everybody knew daddy was home, mommy was home. We were going to spend time together. And sometimes we may just sing, or we may have fun, or we may just have a dialogue or we would look in a passage of scripture. One of the things we did together was read through the Chronicles of Narnia. The whole thing. Our kids loved it. And boy, is, is, you think there's any spiritual truth in there? Just a little. Did that help? You're quite welcome. Okay. So the creepy story happened. It doesn't have to be creepy for you, but you do need to respond to the call. And you want your children to do the same. The church can only reinforce what you're giving them. That's our job. And there were extended results with this 
great person. Here's what the Bible tells us. Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words, I like the King James language, fall to the ground. Let none of his words fail. When he said, this is what God's going to do, it happened. And all Israel from Dan even to Beersheba, from north to south, from uh, Washington State all the way to Florida Keys. Everybody knew that he was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. And, great memory verse, by the way, the Lord appeared again at Shiloh because the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. I don't want to park on that too much, but it makes me a little crazy. Oh, I feel this. I feel the Holy Spirit told me that. And the Bible says you're full of baloney. He reveals himself by the word of the Lord. If you're hearing the Holy Spirit, it will line up with what the Bible says. Otherwise, you're deceived. You're listening to the wrong spirit. Mm -hmm. Samuel anointed kings, commanded victories for Israel, took Agag, slew him right in front of it. Man, that was some macho dude. Holy cow. That's what Samuel became. Samuel had some gravitas. Here's what it says. You remember later on Saul kind of blew things? He anointed Saul as king. Remember that? And the reason he had to do that was because his sons didn't follow in his footsteps. And then Saul bails. Saul bombs. And he says, I found somebody with a heart after me. I'm going to send you to anoint him. It was David who was going to be king. He's just a kid at the time. And God sends Samuel to Bethlehem. Here's what it says. So Samuel did what the Lord said, and he came to Bethlehem, and the elders of the city came trembling to meet him and said, Why are you here? Uh, why are you here? I may remember the last time I saw somebody trembling before me. It did happen more than once. But the attitude that the church today has toward its shepherds is kind of tragic, to be honest. Especially if they love the Lord and they're trying to help you for your good. Eh, who cares what you think? I know somebody who does care. A lot. He'll sort it out. So the parents and Eli, the church, both invested in Samuel and others. Think about the impact of this young... Ooh, I showed you a picture I shouldn't have shown you. And I took it. Anyway, um, here's the point. He was a toddler. He was a young man. God put his hand on him and used him with power. He's done it again and again, and he will again and again yet. The kingdom isn't done yet. The gathering isn't finished. Jesus hasn't come back. There are young people that God's going to put his hands on, whether powerfully or just normally. Let me illustrate a little bit. In the Old Testament, later on, you're going to read just before the, uh, the Judean kingdom goes into exile because of their stubborn unwillingness to listen. God raises up one last great king, Josiah. Anybody re ever hear, heard of him? Josiah, one of the last ones under the high priest Ilkiah. He is, listen to this, he becomes king at eight years old. It says when he was 16, 
He sought the Lord to walk after David's God. He was seeking the God of David, his father, with all his heart. By 20, a 20-year-old, he purged the entire nation of false gods. Went across the river and started purging Israel, too. Get rid of those things. Burn those Asherah poles. Get rid of Baal. Start following the Lord. Send out instruction, whatever. 20 years old. And at 26, he said, 26? Sorry, nothing personal for you 26-year-olds, but that's young. Especially to me. Oh, to be young again. He said, okay, it's time to fix up the temple. It's a wreck. Let's fix it up. And they start fixing it up, and they find the book of the law. And he says, oh, my goodness, read this to me. And they start reading it. And all of a sudden, Josiah rips his clothes and says, we're dead. We're doomed. We have sinned against God. Oh, my goodness, are we in trouble. A 26-year-old. And a revival breaks out. And they follow the Lord all his days. And God even says, because your heart was tender toward my word, because you honored me, because it matters to you, I'm not going to let the judgment happen on your watch. You'll have peace. Oh, to God that we would take him seriously. A young man, 15 years old, walks into a chapel in London, hears the gospel, gets born again. At 16, he's preaching already. And within a few years, he begins building that place, the Metropolitan Tabernacle. It's Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers. The Prince of Preachers, that's what he's called. That place was filled with thousands of people, repeatedly, Sunday mornings for years. Started all kinds of ministries out of that place. A young man, 15 years old, started preaching at 16. And maybe it's not going to be all that radical. Maybe it's, you know, a Rachel going to Bible college and uh, uh, a good college. It's a good college, a good place to get married. We already heard that. (laughs) Maybe it's an Alyssa who will go around the globe and just win a few people. Maybe it's just the average kids that we raise up who make friends with their neighbors or co-schoolmates and actually lead them to see Jesus. Maybe that's all it'll be. But that's huge! Because it's a life. This is not in any way about me by any means. But I had the privilege of my oldest daughter's boyfriend, before he was allowed to be my oldest daughter's boyfriend, was in our youth group, came to see me, and he was like so ready. It's like, I need to become a Christian. I said, yeah, you do. And he was birthed into the kingdom running. And the other day... This is like within this last year. He comes to me and he says, Pastor John, you just need to know, I've made you a spiritual grandfather. God doesn't have grandchildren, but we can. And I was like, oh, Tommy, you've made my day. When you're not flying Blackhawks and blowing people up, you're helping them come to Jesus. (laughs) Isn't that awesome? I'm exaggerating. He does fly black hogs. <laughs> Today I'm appealing to us as a church. Not everybody's called to minister to children. We're all called, if we have children in our circumference, to try to be Jesus to them somehow. 
But we need to train our children and raise that bar up as an assembly. Barna mentioned in 2004, 5 to 13-year-olds, 32% probability of accepting Christ from 5 to 13. And the majority of children, two-thirds of all young people pre-18th birthday, two-thirds became Christians, half of them by their parents. It's a fertile field, right? But not just to get them to pray a prayer, to get them to be disciples and see what it means to enjoy serving Christ and living for him. So we have some presuppositions. The parents have the primary, but we want to help. And so if you can be part of that, we're going to invite you to do that. We have a little video we want to show you just as an encouragement If you're interested, you should talk to Terry Lucas or my wife or other people who have been on this team. Um, Where is Katie? Are you? Are you on Junior Church, right? And by the way, we're looking for a name. We haven't decided. Nobody gets a prize if we pick your name. Just uh, go ahead and try it, okay? But let me just say this. This uh, This is a test for us as a church. This is a test for us. Whether we want to be a church versus a club. And guess what? No grade. No grade on this test. It's pass or fail. It's pass or fail. It's really no in between. So I'm going to ask you to run that video and then I'll close in prayer. It's kind of cute. When I grow up, I want to be a famous horse rider. A cheerleader. I want to be a veterinarian when I grow up. A baby doctor. I want to be a ballerina. I want to be a race car driver. A fisherman. You can help shape who we become. A Bill God's single. You can be my teacher. After all, I can grow up to be your doctor. Wouldn't you want me to know about God before I do that? I'm worth the investment. I'm worth it. You can be the one who can change my life. And build God's kingdom. Through you, I can do anything. I can do all things. Amen. That's cute. You can help me. I remember as a new, as a young, young man, I wasn't even born again yet. I wasn't born again yet. But there was a man who taught in our Sunday school in Flushing, no comments, Flushing, New York, First Baptist Church, a sister church of ours. And one thing I got from him, he really knew Jesus and loved him. He was engaged in serving, and I knew this guy was all in. And his modeling stuck with me my whole life. To this day, I think of John Tomasian over and over. His commitment, small things, spending a few minutes to talk to me about a tooth problem he had. And you have no idea. You have no idea the impartation that can happen. Let's stand together as we close. Today, Lord, we ask for help. 
some of us have gifts of teaching that ought not to be buried. Some of us specifically just love being around kids. Other of us, like myself, are challenged in that regard. But we can help. So, Father, in the name of Jesus, I'm praying that you would move on the hearts of your people, that we would rise up to be the church, the church, supporting our parents in helping our children follow Christ, not be religious, not church members, followers of Christ. Followers of Christ for your namesake. We pray this in Jesus' name. Move on us. Let us take action. Put your angels around your people and guard us. We pray in this week. In the great name of Jesus, we pray and all of God's people said, amen and amen. You are dismissed. God bless.